1: Pop Health Week on the Blog Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. This is episode 153. Welcome everyone, I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show, and in the virtual studio today is my colleague, Fred Goldstein, principal co-host and co-founder of Pop Health Week. Welcome, Fred, and may I extend my deepest regrets to the very wounded fans of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Well, thank you very much for that. It's been a sad couple of days, but we'll move on. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I can imagine next year's always next year, as they say. And for those of you not familiar with Fred, he is a veteran healthcare executive and the president of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm, and the father of the annual Wellness visit. Fred serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Population Health Management and the Best Practices Review Panel for the Institute of Medicaid Innovations. He is past chair and former board member of the Population Health Alliance. Fred is known on Twitter as at FSGoldstein. My background includes thought leadership and strategy consulting for hospitals, health systems, and physician-led ventures. I publish and principally author acowatch.com, healthinnovationmedia.com, and precisionmedicine.center. And now for today's special guest, Jane Saracen Khan. Jane is a health economist, advisor, and trend weaver supporting organizations at the intersection of health, technology, and people. Jane founded Think Health after working for 10 years with healthcare consultancies in the United States and Europe, Jane's clients are all stakeholders in health, technology, bio and life sciences, providers, plans, retail, financial services, food, and consumer goods. She founded the Health Populi blog in 2007. Jane sits on many advisory boards spanning healthcare health technology, and patient social networks. She is also on the board of The Clinic, a free clinic for residents in her community. Jane is a frequent speaker and also contributes to the Huffington Post. She's been named one of the top 100 influencers and brands in digital health, one of the top 100 most influential economists in the world, one of the top five women in healthcare blogs, one of the 40 healthcare transformers and one of 25 healthcare leaders you should follow on Twitter via at And with that introduction, Fred, over to you. Help us get to know Jane and what's on our radar post-CES and now on Final Approach to HIMSS 2018. Well, thank you so much, Greg. And Jane, it's a pleasure to have you on Pop Health Week.
0: I'm thrilled to be here, but I have two problems. Number one, this is episode 153. So why wasn't I like 2, 3, 12, 13? Uh, okay, 153, number one. Number two, as I'm sitting here in suburban Philadelphia, go Eagles! That's all I can say.
2: Well, I'll steer clear of the first one, Jane, and to the second, <laughs> I'm all with you. Go Eagles!
0: Exactly. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, anyway... We-
2: We'll be happy about that one. So <laughs> thanks again so much for coming on. And, um, you know, you, you I, I, I've always read your, your your blog posts and heard you speak, and you cover a lot of different topics, and that's what I really like, that intersection as you, as, as you talk about. can As an economist, you know, there's this whole move to value-based care. Could you sort of touch on your thinking around that? Will it work? What might hinder it?
0: Mm-hmm. So, however, we define value based care, and there are a lot of different lenses on this uh, bundled payments, outcome based payments, uh, how value based care um, fits into Medicare this year, will it fit into Medicare this year? Uh, the bottom line through the economic lens is that hospital administrators, Sage ones, and big medical schools have been warning us for a few years that healthcare has to do more with less because healthcare providers will be paid less. There's no way we can sustain the current model. So whether we say uh, or ask the question, can value-based healthcare work? we must be more value conscious and mindful if we are healthcare providers and suppliers to the industry because uh, we will be paid less to do more and so as we go forward we have to have that value proposition in our minds what are we doing that creates value in, in terms of the triple aim and now even the quadruple aim taking into account the fact that our physicians and, and nurses are facing burnout and depression. Um, you all probably saw the Medscape study that came out last week, the annual um, physician burnout study. This year they added the word depression to the title. So not only do we have to think about physicians and burnout, we have to think about physicians and depression. I bring them up in this value-based discussion because if we have a burned-out workforce, we can't get to any aim. Uh, we certainly can't deliver on the promise of value. So when we think about what is value-based healthcare, we have to think about getting to health before we get to healthcare. And how do we do that? We try to look at our population and we may wanna touch on population health in a minute, but a key aspect of that is social determinants of health so that we know our sick patients nutritious food to eat. Um, I just met with a big pharma in the last week where we talked about the value of medicines. And this is a discussion I've had with pharmas for at least eight years, the value of medicine talk. And um, a lot of Medicaid plans will reimburse for very expensive specialty drugs now. But I've been asking the question, when you work with a state agency, are you also uh, um meeting with the SNAP or food stamp program to ensure that people who are enrolled in both sides, in food and in Medicaid, that they have access to nutritious food. And if not, if you have a $100,000 drug that, that the governor is paying for, you better make sure that patient has access to food in some sort of innovative program. And so we're starting to connect the dots now with the supply chain in terms of pharma and med devices, and then with hospitals more and more looking at issues of housing, utility payments, uh, safe environments for kids, uh, clean air, clean water. Think about Flint uh, and kids there. So um, we we must couple value-based healthcare attending to social determinants as well and think more broadly about partnerships in our communities to drive health.
2: Yeah, and, and that's fascinating. I've been watching as hospitals try to delve a little bit more into social determinants. And I'd love your think on this. On the one hand, I've looked at it and said to myself, I don't know if the hospital is the right place to be steering that work. And, and perhaps that's why we need a, a broader coalition of folks with the hospital and providers of peace, but others sort of driving that side of it. Do, do you think do you see it the same way, or are hospitals really the place to say, well, we're going to go solve the social determinants issues?
0: Yeah, it depends on the community. I mean, you could look at something like New York Health and Hospitals, which has a lot of social mission and scale. And scale is really important in these situations. Um, I've been spending time in San Diego, even though I'm based in Philly, with uh, the, the 211 San Diego group, and uh, <laughs> 211 are services around the country that uh, – grew out of United Way, but they, they, they look at social determinants. And so what they're doing at 2 one in San Diego is working from the bottom up. And so they're providing a wonderful Salesforce-based uh, platform, by the way, really high-tech, te- high uh, current tech, to um, access uh, and, and organize data from the call center so that they can anticipate needs. Of people who call in ahead of time and then link with the community beyond the utilities, the housing, the job banks, uh, food banks, et cetera, with the healthcare providers and the health plans. So the Kaisers and the Scripps and, and others in the community. And so different communities are going after this in different ways. And I think a lot of it depends on the demographics psychographics of the community, the supply side of healthcare providers, are you rural, are you urban? A lot of communities can um, uh, leverage the faith-based communities where they are, for example. And I think churches play a huge role in many communities in rural areas where I've been, where Walmart (laughs) also can play a big role in primary care and in um, things like oral care and optician care. So it really depends on where you live, work, play, and pray.
2: Uh huh. That makes a lot of sense. And where do you think the funding comes from for these various services and initiatives?
0: Well, if we follow the money, I'm an economist married to a banker, so I'm really clear about <laughs> about following money. Uh, yeah, it's a long, long-lived and happy and happy marriage. But you, you sort of symbiotic after all these years. Um, If you look at the treasury function in healthcare, where does the money come in and and get uh, distributed? You know, you think about the insurance company or you think about a Kaiser or a Geisinger where things are integrated, which is much easier to manage uh, value in something like that versus in a fragmented system, which is why I love to see some of the vertical integrations going on. I'm fascinated, for example, to see if CVS Aetna is approved. Um, by the FTC in terms of antitrust, but a a um, venture like that do in terms of creating value uh, in, in the vertical uh in healthcare from primary care all the way through to acute care. Um, so where does where is the money function in healthcare? And generally now it's with the insurance company, who I think has to really step up, uh, man and woman up in terms of really taking care of the whole person. There have been excuses over the years that there's so much churn uh, in membership in health insurance, but um, even over a two-year period, I think a plan could really move the needle on healthcare costs if they began to look at just some key elements in terms of nutrition and housing and uh, education. Uh, uh, in terms of health literacy now, if you're just looking at one to two years, there's a lot more a health plan could do uh, in this value-based world.
2: I, I'm, I'm with you completely. It seems to me that, that if we um, looked at all the dollars going into healthcare and recognized all the excesses in there, you could take those out and just redirect those to these major issues that would result in healthier populations who use less care. Uh,
0: yeah, and, and the thing is, we don't even have to take all of it out because that's uh, a holy grail, but we're not going to get right. there. But just to move the needle, if we just take some out, uh, find some waste, find some duplication, um, take that, those funds out, the social determinants stuff is fairly inexpensive to address because um, you're working with community organizations who are already out there, who are already lean and have this mission-driven objective. So it really doesn't take a whole lot of money. Uh, Now, if you want to go build a Salesforce-like CRM system to do this, then you you go to big employers in the area who have a stake in their community, foundations and others, uh, to uh, share funding for the community objective. So there's lots of creative ways to do this. And Lord knows there are a lot of foundations who are looking to put money into projects like this. Mm -hmm.
2: You, you talked about the, the social terms. We've dug into it a little bit. Obviously, that's a piece of population health. Um, what's your sense of population health now, its current status, and what it might or might not be able to do?
0: Yeah, so population health is a little like AI. Everybody's talking about it, and there are some different definitions and different lenses on it, and I'm all for the general definition of it, which is uh, look at a group of people who live in a community or in a panel of patients um, and risk manage uh, health for the frequent flyers in healthcare. So identify mm-hmm. and address address that. Um, that is one way to go about it. Um, it's, I think there's no reason we can't do this now, we have the technology to do it. Uh, A lot of it has to do with culture in a medical practice or a community in the hospital. Uh, But the motivation should be there because everyone's taking on, uh, or most providers are taking on some level of risk now. And so we've got to cut our teeth at some point. So you can identify some low hanging fruit in population health, maybe a panel of people with type two diabetes, maybe, some kids with pediatric with asthma that needs better management and figure out, um, not only in terms of the data, who needs to help the most, but start to deploy some of the digital health tools in the hands of patients to teach them how to self-care and stick to self-care so we avoid those uh, emergency room visits and visits that could be averted.
2: Mm-hmm. Speaking of digital healthcare and, and integrating that into population health, you were at CES. Uh, what was your overall sense of the healthcare stuff you saw at CES? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, what's really exciting isn't the healthcare stuff anymore, it's the stuff that can help healthcare. So, um, when I started to go to CES, which was seven years ago, it was hard for me to believe when I look back at my blog and at my first CES take. When I first went to CES, I met with Fitbit and Under Armour and um, uh, Honeywell for uh, personal emergency response systems. There are 50 or so vendors there, all in the Sands Venetian Conference Center. All the digital health could be done in one day, walking three or four aisles. Now, fast forward to today, um, healthcare is like a quarter of the Sands Venetian Confer- Conference Center, and you know how big that is if you've been to Hims and other conferences. So there's a lot of healthcare. It takes many forms, like personal emergency response systems, Sleep, heart health, uh, fit, wellness, um, safe aging, uh, all kinds of of takes on this. Oh, food, of course, tracking food, uh, items to measure calories that make it much easier and track. Um, Smart beds for sleep, smart um, uh, eye covers for sleep. Um, But what's really important now is the emergence of the Internet of Things for a healthy home. So for someone like me attending CES in 2018, I put on many more steps, many more miles this year, because I had to go all the way to the Las Vegas Convention Center to meet with connected car companies, to meet with... Whirlpool and appliance companies and Samsung, which has the family health hub in the refrigerator now, which is connected to the TV, which is connected to the car, because Samsung works with Harman. Then I have to go all the way to the other side of Vegas, to Aria Hotel, which has the C C area, initial C, which has all the communications folks in it, so Google and Facebook and all of the digital companies who are enabling us to form social networks and do uh, healthcare care ads and things like that that are targeted to people who really need help managing conditions so you're covering miles of the strip in Las Vegas now uh, when you cover health the way I define health if you just want to do health care you can stay in the sand but what's going to move the needle for everybody is making things easier at home, to make good decisions about food, to move around, to have good oral care, and, and seeing increasingly our lose our bathroom, as a health hub in the home. It will not be too long now for us to commercialize a smart toilet, for example, that can read blood sugar. And I was talking with someone earlier this week in the diabetes space, technology space, and I said, you know, my dad who lived to 86, he was the long liver. My mom died young. My dad died old and well. And he was diagnosed with diabetes in his 40s. I guess that was in the 60s. When, when he uh, was diagnosed, he was peeing on a little piece of paper and looking at the color. Um, and we had a close family with one bathroom. So, it, you know, it was all there, there was no humility here. Uh, so I learned about this very, very young. And daddy managed his diabetes through diet and exercise his whole life. Until he was 84, and then he had to take insulin due to heart failure, because his, all his systems were were uh, out of out of whack. But I saw, you know, Dad u- using his urine to look at his sugar. We are going back to the future with the smart toilet, peeing in a toilet and having our blood sugar read, also other things through the other the other end of our. Um, of our colon where we can look at at feces and excrement and look at microbiome stuff. So it's very exciting to think about the bathroom and the role of the time we spend in there to help manage our health. Also smart mirrors who can take pictures of you over time every day and note if one day you look depressed or sad or sallow or green, whatever it is. So we're seeing everything that can connect to the internet, being able to connect to the internet, and that then generates data that can be collected longitudinally, analyzed and fed back to us, to coach us, to fed to our clinicians, whatever. God is in those details for health. You know, We love lab tests and, and when done uh, appropriately, and uh, digital imaging when done at the right time in the right place. Uh, but uh, so much of the important data is in our everyday life, and that happens in the kitchen, it happens in the loo, it happens in the car and in the bedroom. So um, I'm hopeful. There's a whole other discussion for another blog talk session on privacy and cybersecurity around all that data and Alexa knowing what Alexa may already know about us. But um, uh, that, as a sidebar, what we mm-hmm. can do with this data for population health. And managing health ourselves outside of the the expensive emergency room is really exciting.
2: So, I think this is great, you know. And obviously, it's sort of like, um, you know, originally it was just the Fitbit, and now as you talk about, it's all these other things that are be connected up and feed this data in and feed this data in, and we know more and more about Fred or Jane or Greg. Um, Did you see anything that excited you? about the feedback loop to the individual themselves? It seems like Uh, we're really good at pushing the stuff up there, analyzing it, figuring it out, but at the end of the day, coming back at the individual with something that will change behavior or or things like that?
0: I'm seeing individual things like a Fitbit or a Philips Sleep Technology, Smart Sleep, Um, or the Omron EKG and blood pressure watch, which individually they are now giving you tools to make changes uh, and choices in the moment. However, I'm not seeing that Holy Grail you're talking about where the data is pushed up through the Validic cloud and it all comes together and then comes back to you to say, you seem depressed today and you're overeating. So pick an orange instead of the chimichanga for your snack and take 500 steps away from the computer at this moment. I don't see that happening yet. It will come. Um, But right now, what I am pleased to see is that something uh, and I am a right now uh, where I am in life with so much blue light at night and um, you know, just digital activity, sleep is a real issue and sleep is sort of the new black at CES. I wrote that last year, but this year sleep was even bigger. And so something like Philips, and they don't pay me to say this, um, they they aren't a client, but they have this smart sleep technology, which is a fits over your eyes. Um, So, you know, like a dark band over your eyes, you'd wear on an airplane at night or whatever. But what's in there are sound waves, that lull you into your deep wave sleep and then perceive, perceive when you're getting out of deep wave and send you back in there with the right tones. So that if you say, I wanna wake up at 6.30 a.m. And you, know, and you go to bed at 11, even though you're only getting seven hours of sleep, you have quality sleep in the deep wave. So there's science behind that and it can perceive that you aren't in the deep wave and send you the right signals. Instead of just tracking and telling you, you had a crappy night of sleep, you know, right. that, that is worthless. And I, and I have one person who has done that for a number of months, uh, years ago. And I figured out, you know what, I know I had a bad night of sleep. Um, and I know what's keeping me up. I need something to help me that isn't a drug, that isn't an OTC, that isn't codeine, you know. And I'm very excited about this, this growing field of digital therapeutics or software as medicine, because um, I think it's not the overall cure for the opioid epidemic, but I think it could be something that can help a lot of people, whether it's pain or sleep or behavior change, uh, like eating or moving around or managing migraines. So, um, you know, I'm seeing green shoots of helpful things that coach you or actually lull you into better feeling. We also see a great promise for uh, AR, artificial reality. Uh, Brennan Spiegel's doing amazing research at UC, uh, um, uh, which is a UC, it's not UCSF, he's in the south. It, it might be Cedar. Davis. Anyway, no UCLA, uh, Brennan Spiegel. So, um, anyway, AR was another big story coming out of CES for healthcare.
2: So, um, you touched upon the, the Phillips stuff and it really cool technology. One of the things we discussed right before the call, and I had seen it, and you actually got to see it live, um, was this Affleck duck. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was really a fascinating thing.
0: Yeah, so we all know the Aflac Duck, who is a beloved brand in terms of brand equity from the marketer's standpoint, but Aflac has a foundation that over the years has contributed over $120 million to cancer causes, research, and especially pediatric cancer hospitals. And so um, about a year and a half ago, they brought in um, to advise them on this project Sproutel. Sproutel, Greg Masters and I, Greg, you probably met them five years ago at Health 2.0, where uh, the uh, team, Hannah and Aaron introduced Jerry the Bear, which is a robotic fuzzy bear to help kids with type 1 diabetes manage their condition. Uh, And it was rudimentary robotics at the time. Sproutel, five years later, and they're based in... of so Some of them have come out of Hasbro, the toy industry, uh, the toy maker, and then RISD uh, for their digital um, design training. In any case, Hannah and Aaron have grown now up to eight or ten people at Sproutel. And they worked with Affleck to create this white, fluffy, sweet, empathetic, literally empathetic, huggable duck the size of a baby duck toy. It is furry. It breathes. You know, it, it it seems to have uh, respiratory function in and out, and uh, it has uh, expressions and little sensors that you can put up to the duck's uh, chest that, do, that perform different acts.
1: And that will have to be the last word for today's truncated broadcast due to a technical glitch at Blog Talk Radio. Now, let me add one of the shout-outs from during Jane's interview to Jerry the Bear. Check it out, jerrythebear.com. And a big shout-out to co-founders Aaron Horowitz and Hannah Chung, who've come a long way since... uh, Health 2.0 2014. Do follow them both on the web and on Twitter via at JerryTheBearCo. I do want to thank our guest, Jane saracen Khan for her time and many insights today. Do follow Jane's work on the web via wwwthink and on Twitter via at HealthyThinker. And now finally, if your hospital health system physician venture or healthcare conference is in the market for social media support, including content development, curation, engagement, or amplification, do ping me on Twitter via at the number two health guru or email greg with two G's at healthinvasionmedia.com. Fred and I will be happy to lend our subject matter expertise to your efforts. Until we meet again on Pop Health Week, For Fred Goldstein, this is Greg Masters saying bye now, and see you in Philly for the 18th Population Health Colloquium.